0: Hey, kosher queerlings. How do you feel about the word queerlings? One of my students came up with it, and I'm kind of into it, but uh, open to feedback. Anyway, just wanted to let you know that we recorded this episode pre-pandemic, so if you're listening and you're like, why are Jazz and Lulu talking as if everything is normal when there are plagues that have been lifted off the text of the Tanakh and brought into this year of 5780, it is because we were living in blissful ignorance of this particular horror that was loosed upon the world. We knew there were other horrors out there. The world is full of them. I think Lulove is even into some kind of lesbian horror podcast, which is weird to me because it is so not my genre. But I hope this episode is a small reprieve for you from the outside world. And by that, I definitely mean the inside world because please, please stay inside. Protect your immunocompromised friends. And if you do not have any, protect my immunocompromised friends and just like chill indoors and listen to this podcast that we have made just for you. Okay, catch you in the episode.
1: Hey, Jazz, would you say that I'm particularly suggestible? Maybe? Why? If you had to say, which one would you go with? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. I guess I am really suggestible. (laughs) The reason I ask is because last Saturday, I was hanging out with a bunch of queer friends from Shul, and there was a new person who is a bassist and is a butch in the style of Shane McCutcheon from The L Word. Anyway... She's forming a band and offhand, she was like, oh, hey, do you play drums? And in that moment, I had like 20 cycles of, no, I don't play drums. But what if I could? What if I learned right now how to play drums?
0: What a game mood. Yeah.
1: Anyway, shout out to Gabs. You are maybe listening. I don't know. (laughs) The Jewish end of cool queer and jewish things is that apparently before i arrived everybody had discussed the fact that gab's is in fact half jewish and really wants to go to shul with us so that's fun
0: that's so lovely
1: yeah everybody's jewish and everybody's gay
0: yes yes
1: (laughs) jazz what cool queer and jewish things have
0: happened with you this week So, I got to go visit a couple rabbinical schools as a prospective student recently, and one of them was a visit down to Philly to visit the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, and I loved that, and I consider it definitely to be a queer and Jewish experience in many ways, also because I walked in and I was like, friends, I know these friends (laughs) who are... All trans friends, uh, maybe a couple cis queer friends, and one of whom I did not know, but I had been getting dinner with my mm-hmm. friend Jess the night before, and Jess had very accurately described her partner, and I walked in, and there was a person in short undercut and arm in a sling, and I was like, "Are you Ren?" And Ren was like, "Are you Jez?" And then we got <laughs> to hang out. So
1: that's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So are these other prospective students or people who are currently in rabbinical school? They are people who are currently
0: in rabbinical school. That is rad. It was rad. Also, I got to sit in on a student government meeting and they were discussing like students making updates to the school's grievance policy. And they were like, we should have the authority as students to like band together to work, to make this school better for all of us. It was very Hmm. sweet. Also, I asked the dean of students about their pedagogy and she told me they believed that rabbis were vessels of Torah and that that's how they were approaching it and that what it meant for them to be ordaining reconstructionist rabbis was that they saw Judaism as Torah plus Jews and they wanted to be as interested in the Jews as in the Judaism. Okay. And so like part of what that meant is that stuff about it's always been a feminist school and now it's like pretty increasingly an all-queer school. (laughs) 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 And with a lot of trans students there. And she was like, so we're trying to do other things too. And prioritizing things like rabbis of color and rabbis from working class backgrounds. Nice. Yeah. They're the only rabbinical school that lets you have a partner who's not Jewish.
1: Okay. Like you get kicked out of other rabbinical schools if you don't break up with your goyish
0: partner? Yes. That's wild. Yes. But also, hmm. But that's wild. (laughs) It's wild. I don't really know how they handle it if you have a Jewish partner and a non Jewish partner. I don't feel like they're very equipped. Other places, I mean.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that any amount of ham is enough to make a dish tray. Uh-huh. Not to compare partners to food, though, Tova, if you're listening, you're quite the dish. <laughs>
0: Well, except that that's not true. There is also a pretty widespread interpretation that if there is less than one 60th, that's six zero, 60th of your food has ham in it, the dish can still be kosher.
1: Oh, is that why some foods in the nutrition facts, which I read a lot of yesterday because I'm trying to cut out soy from my diet, why some nutrition facts will have like less than 1% of?
0: Somehow I don't think it's because of halacha. Halacha.
1: That's, yeah.
0: But it's the same line of reasoning.
1: Good. Are you ready to start the episode?
0: I am. One, two, three, four.
1: Welcome to Kosher Queers, a podcast with at least two Jews and generally more than three opinions. Each week we bring you queer takes on Torah, their
0: jazz, and she's Lula.
1: And today we're going to talk about Vayechel Pekuday.
0: We sure are. It's our first double Parsha episode, I think. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that?
1: I feel great about that because most of it is a review of the last three Parshot. So like, it's great that it's one episode instead of two.
0: Yeah, I hear you on that for sure. Are you ready for a summary?
1: I am. How much time do you want? 40 seconds. Ooh, okay. Ready? This is the long version of my summary, to be clear.
0: Okay. Ready, set,
1: go. Hey, remember Shabbat and don't light fires. Moshe really relates the Mishkan plans to the people, and a whole bunch of Israelites love the idea of this crafting project. Bezalel and Neholiab are the camp counselors, and the booster club brings so many supplies that Moshe actually has to turn them away. Not even counting fabric, they get a metric ton of gold, three and a half tons of silver, and two and a half tons of bronze. They make the things as requested, just in case you were wondering. Uh, On the next Rosh Hashanah, Moshe assembles the Ark of the Covenant just kind of out in the open, but then he brings it into the Mishkan and that messenger cloud settles in, ready to guide the people. All right! That was so
0: prompt! (laughs)
1: That's me high-fiving myself. Great.
0: I would high-five you if I were there. (gasps) (laughs) Wait, you said that was the long version? What's the short version?
1: Instead of telling you how much coinage medals they bring in, I think I would probably just cut out that line. Okay. They bring so many supplies that Moshe actually has to turn them away. Yeah. They make the things as requested. Yeah, great. But I like numbers. I am the daughter of two accountants. And so I have magical number powers.
0: I am very much not. So it's good that (laughs) one of us can do some number things. (laughs) My number skill sort of stops at basic gematria. Okay.
1: See, my number skills do not include basic gematria. So there you go.
0: Did you know that the Yente Vape has a value of twenty-six and Ahava has a value of thirteen, and that the Shema is bracketed by two prayers about love? And it's because, like, if you put the both of them together, it is like God.
1: I'm hooting and hollering internally.
0: Anyway, that was what I learned from my other rabbinical school visit. Oh, that's fun! Yeah, I had one good thing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Anyway, are you going to take us through the Parsha?
1: Yes. Moshe assembled all the congregation of the Israelites, and he was like, six days shall work be done, but you can't work on Shabbat. You will die. And just a side note, don't kindle any fire in all your dwellings on the Sabbath day, which is, I think, new information, right, Jess?
0: That you can't light any fires?
1: Yeah. I
0: think so. I don't remember if we got that earlier. They've definitely been clear about don't do any work, but this might be the first time we get no Mm -hmm. fire specified. I can go check if you want.
1: I like the interpretation that I just came up with, which is that this has been said several times, like you don't work on one out of seven days. But people have been like, hey, I know you can't work, but can you light a fire? And this is Moshe coming back to it like, no, don't light fires, we decided.
0: People asked questions, and then Moshe figured it out. Yeah. It's like pre-Talmud Talmudics. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and we only have one person credited with that information. (laughs) Well,
0: that's sometimes how the Talmud works too, is like one person will go and come back with an answer. It's just that then... Other people will come and be like, I don't know if I agree with that.
1: Yeah, and we didn't have like Rabbi Johanan here to jump in. Aww. I don't know which Rabbi that is. I have no personal feelings about his teachings, but we like Yochanan he's one of the gay ones, right? Because he's
0: one of the gay ones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's his boyfriend? Reish Lakish.
1: Nice.
0: Yeah. Bye, bandit. Reish Lakish. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love that. Tamlet is good. Our ancestors are good. So we continue on with him telling the gathered Israelites the plans for the Mishkan. And these are the plans that we have received over the last three parshot.
0: I have a specific thing about one of the plans because we've already told you about lots of them before, so I don't feel like we need to go through it at length. But in 3525, can you read what your translation has as that line for me?
1: All the skillful women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and crimson yarns and fine linen.
0: Okay, so yours has skillful and mine has skilled, but I looked at the Hebrew and I don't like skilled as the translation there. Okay. So I was looking at it and it is... lev, Which is, and all the women who were wise of heart. Oh... And I was like, that's so lovely. Where else does it show up? Where else do we hear about the phrase women who are wise of heart? And the answer is nowhere. It shows up (laughs) twice in this Parsha and nowhere else. But back in Ki-Tisa, we had the super talented craftsman named Bezalel. Do you remember this? I was like, crafty trans people, here's a name for you. (laughs) Anyway, so God gave Bezalel a team of craftspeople back in that Parsha. And my translation at the time rendered that phrase as, I have also granted skill to all who are skillful. But the actual Mm. words back there is not all who are skillful. It's, kol chacham lev nice so all who are wise of heart and so the safari's translation of it is more like and in the hearts of all who are wise-hearted i have placed wisdom which is lovely nice anyway so then we have here the wise-hearted women so this is all coming around to my larger point of if making the mishkan involves sewing a tent and doing carpentry and smithing things out of gold and all of those stuff is the mishkan all made by some wise and crafty butch women
1: Amazing. I like to think that it's made by some wise and crafty butch women and their femme wives. Beautiful. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not to put like 1950s lesbian archetypes onto (laughs) our ancestors, but (laughs) yeah, no, that's great. I love that a lot. So I also want to contrast Wise of Heart with the way Pharaoh was called Heart of Heart. Ooh. Because I think that is directly related, maybe not etymologically, but the idea that it's like heart of heart contrasted with wise of heart.
0: Mm, That's so lovely.
1: Heart of tongue contrasted with wise of tongue, maybe.
0: That's lovely. Let me grab another reference text that this reminded me of. This is not a Jewish reference text. It's just a gay reference text. Give me a sec. Amazing. Okay, so my friend Moira gave me a book which I really love but also have trouble saying out loud because of its title but I will link it in the show notes is this slur trouble yeah. or tongue
1: twister trouble no oh,
0: okay <laughs> I genuinely don't know how to read it I like any of the book out loud but I do love it I'm just gonna read this excerpt with a redacted in the middle Okay. The context for this book is that it's written by a bunch of gay men during the AIDS crisis, and it's about, like, finding a world in which we slash they can all survive. And also it's, like, fiction and poetry and beautifully imaginative type of stuff. And there is sort of a bit in it about connections and relationships with women as well. And there's one bit that goes, like, The strong women told the redacted that there are two important things to remember about the coming revolutions. The first is that we will get our asses kicked. The second is that we will win. Hmm. (laughs) That's a good one. It's a good one. I like that. Yeah. So I was just reminded of it with the wise-hearted women.
1: That's really good. Anyway,
0: let's keep moving.
1: So, Moshe does some of that great delegation taught to him by Armanitro. And he says, Bezalel has been filled with divine spirit. And so has Aholiab. And they are just gonna work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. They're gonna help you out. And everybody gets brought together. And Mush is like, huh, this is a lot of yarn. Oh my God, this is so much yarn. Oh, wow. A lot of medals. Uh, everybody... You're, you're good? <laughs> like, we already have more than we need. So what
0: can the Torah tell us about doing group projects?
1: So my angle on this is come up with a group project that gets everybody so hype that you have a surplus.
0: Mm, I love that.
1: What's your reading?
0: I was just going to say that I have a follow-up slash alternate framing of maybe the same question, which is, mm-hmm. what can we learn from the fact that people were so eager to make things that eventually Moshe had to make an announcement that they had enough things? Like, how can we generalize from that?
1: Yeah, la 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 corner <laughs> Turns out that, like, absent the strictures of capitalism, people actually enjoy doing things with each other. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I really hope that's the nogon used last time. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while. Again, did you have other things that you wanted to contribute? I like
0: yours. I like that people are excited Uh to make a thing, and if people are mobilized, they can be really excited. I also, I just think it's very sweet that the text goes out of its way to say not just like they got enough stuff, but they got so much stuff that... They could turn stuff down. It's like, hey, all of the resources we need are already here in our community. We just got to make sure they get where they need to go.
1: Yeah, that's really good. I love that there were just so many blue, crimson, and purple sheep (laughs) around that... Wait.
0: (laughs) Uh It's not like some of the talented women dyed them or anything.
1: Yeah, no. They just found them like that. Okay. So... Is there anything that you want to talk about between here and, like, the end of 37?
0: I have one specific question, but you can just kind of race through all of that, and then I'll ask it at the end.
1: Yeah, so they build the Mishkan, (laughs) according to the instructions.
0: (laughs) Okay, sure. Yeah, basically. (laughs) They go through all of the details of how they did it. I think our stuff from previous weeks about the ways that they did it kind of holds up the value of caring about specific patterns and stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, my question about the specifics in the text there is that in lots of places in this parsha and in the description of, like, making things, we get a general they made, and in some places we get a specific bizalel made. Yeah. So is the Torah telling us something about correctly citing who has done what work or about distributed leadership and fractal ground roots organizing, like the way Adrian Marie Brown mm-hmm. talks about it? Like, what does it mean that sometimes it's, like, all of the people made, and sometimes it's a specific, like, this one person made it.
1: Yeah, I think this gets to, like, a Renaissance workshop kind of thing, where, like, there's a teacher, but the people actually making it are the students. So, like, when it says Bizalel makes the things, everybody else is doing the handiwork, it's just that Bezalel is leading them in some of the things.
0: Is my take on that? You think that's true for all of them? Like, why then would it distribute between some of them has a more general, like, they made it, and some of them has a more specific, like, he made it.
1: Can you point out a part in these two chapters where it says they made it?
0: Yeah. All over 36, it's like, and then the skilled among those engaged in the work. In 14, they made cloths of goat's hair. They joined five of the cloths. They made 50 loops.
1: So for that one I have, he also made curtains of goat's hair. Ooh. And I'm not certain whether the... Divided attribution comes from translation or from the original text.
0: Hmm. What do you have throughout, like, 20 and uh, 31 and stuff like
1: then that? Then he made the upright frames. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle.
0: Whoa. Mine doesn't have that kind of attribution. Mine mm. has they for all of those. Let me okay. check the Hebrew. I didn't think to check. Thank you. Okay.
1: And while you do that, I can say that thirty six eight says all those with skill among the workers made the tabernacle with ten curtains. But that's the one place in these two entire chapters where they nouns are used for attribution.
0: Mm, so what I'm seeing in the Hebrew, and my Hebrew grammar is not amazing, amazing, but there aren't any pronouns in the Hebrew. It's just all done through conjugation.
1: Oh, so like vimido or something?
0: <laughs> but it's not even that. It doesn't have anything that direct. It's just vayash et Like, it's just like, and it was made, kind of. I think that's the type of vav plus verb that we usually have begin a parsha, which is often translated as, like, and he spoke or and he moved or whatever, so it would make sense that yours would do it like that. Yeah. So I think that's the type of form it is. But when we have those at the beginnings of chapters, my translation doesn't do and he does because it's usually referring to God, and so they gender neutral it.
1: Okay, so... The two places where direct attribution are made here are in thirty six eight, where it says, all those with skill among the workers made the tabernacle with 10 curtains. And then one, where it says, Bezalel made the Ark of Acacia Wood.
0: Right. And all of those other times, both following the workers and following that mention of Bezalel, they use this same format of... Vayash, which I assume is, and he made or and they made. Yeah. And my text just seems to be like whatever our most recent referent is, whether it's the yeah. workers or Bezalel, we will attribute it to that person.
1: Love that. Yeah. I prefer that because it makes sense that one man would make the Ark of the Covenant and like the lampstand, maybe while everybody else is working on a huge weaving project.
0: Right. Yeah. So I think that makes more sense to me, too.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Thank you for having the perspicacity to research that on the fly. (laughs) So, yeah, that brings us to chapter 38, which I believe is the beginning of the Pekudé part of Vayechel Pekudé. Yes, you are correct. Great. So there's the altar of burnt offering, and this seems to be conjugated back to Bezalel. Mm Mm-hmm. With all the utensils. This man is doing so much.
0: Well, it does say that he's got buddies now, right? Like he has Ohaliab and Ahisamach.
1: Oholiab, son of Ahisamach. Yeah. Of the tribe of Dan.
0: Yeah. He's got a buddy. <laughs> um, although I'm mostly trying to see if they're gay.
1: <laughs> Where would you look to find that out?
0: Well... I'm looking in two places. One of those places Mm -hmm. is in my heart.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Truly the source of Torah. Uh,
0: But the other one was I was trying to look at the Hebrew to see what words it uses to say that Oholiab is at his side. Okay. To see if that says anything interesting.
1: I mean, their hearts are being stirred. So cute. Who knows? Um,
0: also, I was doing a teeny bit of research on this Parsha because I wanted to see if anybody else had ever said anything interesting about it. And uh, a year or two ago, Ari Lev Fornari, who is the rabbi at Koltzedek down in Philly, did a divar about it that said, like, listen, the whole thing is done with beautiful interior decorating. What do you mean? Of course they're flaming and gay men. <laughs> 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 so, that too. Oh, man. Anyway, Continue.
1: So he makes the altar of burnt offering and all the utensils and also the basin of bronze with the stand of bronze from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting, which is interesting because I don't think textually women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting are mentioned anywhere else previous.
0: Mm.
1: Are you familiar with that?
0: Where are you?
1: I'm at 38.8.
0: Oh, so we're not in Peku yet.
1: What? Oh, yeah, I didn't actually look at the actual delineation between the two. I just assumed because we have six full chapters.
0: No, that would make a whole lot of sense. But in fact, Peku Day starts at 3821. So very helpful.
1: Oh, no, that actually makes more sense. I don't know why the Christians cut it off in the middle between talking about things that Bezalel made and other things that (laughs) Bezalel made.
0: Yeah, anyway, no, so you're right. 38.8 is for the women who perform tasks at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and I don't know who those women are. Great. <laughs> but yeah,
1: that makes sense with the Midrash, that again, we have not released the Forbidden Midrash about mirrors.
0: Oh, we should put it as bonus content.
1: yes. The problem is we have so much bonus content that we need to edit together. Okay, all right. <laughs> we'll do it. It'll be done. Okay. So these are the records of the Mishkan, the Mishkan of the Covenant.
0: Great. Now we're in Peku Day.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Specifically, I think the records are that all of the gold was, what did I say a metric ton? I think it's like 9,994 kilograms of gold. And like three and a half tons of silver and two and a half tons of bronze. It's so much metal.
0: I have a question. Does yours actually list it in tons and kilograms?
1: No, it does not. (laughs) I had to do those conversions myself as the daughter of accountants.
0: (laughs) Incredible.
1: Yeah, so it measures them in talents and shekels. Yeah. And the footnote here says a talent weighed about 34 kilograms or 75 pounds. And a shekel weighed about 11.4 grams, or 0.4 ounces. Hmm.
0: That's also very funny to me because talents are like not a measure used anymore, but shekels is also just the name for the currency of the modern nation state of Israel. Yeah. So you could, in theory, be like, yeah, of course, I'm going to pay 730 shekels for a thing, but that's just, like, not very much. It's, like, $250, (laughs) maybe.
1: Oh, okay, (laughs) big
0: spender over
1: here. (laughs) Most currencies are no longer backed by specie, which means that there isn't a set amount of Gold and silver and bronze that your trait and whatever.
0: Right. Yes. We're not on a gold standard anymore. Is yes. Yeah.
1: Sorry. I have (laughs) feelings about monetary policy, which are extremely
0: amateurish. Tell me your feelings about monetary policy.
1: So when I was like 16, 18, 20, somewhere around there, I read a series by Neal Stevenson who is known for getting really into a couple special interests and then sharing them through his writing. And this particular series, which I cannot remember the name of, but the first book was Quicksilver, I think. This series involved a lot of monetary policy because this was when England was going from pure coinage metals to a government-guaranteed ratio of coinage metals. That general trend in governments of like, whoa, we have way too many people, we can't actually trade using coins, so we need to introduce more coinage into the system to keep exchanges fluid... Yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with this other than the fact that a modern Israeli shekel is going to be less valuable than an ancient Israeli shekel because it is not specie-backed, even though we have greater supplies of coinage metals. It's like worth something because the government of Israel says it's worth something. Does that make sense?
0: Sure, kind of.
1: So I think they're bringing more than $250 worth of silver and stuff
0: i agree with you completely okay <laughs> i have another question for you about the gold stuff though which is uh-huh. bizarre and all of the craftswomen, women slash i guess craftspeople, made all of these things out of gold mm-hmm. the other thing we know about gold in addition to it being expensive <laughs> is that it is a super soft metal not very good for uh-huh. building with i don't know if this is a thing you knew i knew it because no i do uh Okay. I just don't always know what's common knowledge, and I'm just like, maybe this is a thing that they Yeah, how
1: did you know it? I'm very interested in that.
0: Because I grew up in California, and there was a gold rush in California, and they tell you lots of things about gold. They're very proud of it. I didn't learn basically anything else about California history because I moved to Seattle in fifth grade. Wait, you lived in Seattle? What? I didn't know you lived in Seattle. Is this a genuine thing? Yeah, this is a genuine thing. I lived in Seattle from the time I was nine until the time I was 17. I basically consider it my hometown. Oh, well, dang. (laughs) But when I was a small child, the thing that I learned about California history is we had a gold rush and I learned fun facts about gold.
1: That's amazing.
0: Which is perfectly fine for them to use to coat the mishkan with in that, like, it will not melt at any... Reasonable temperature. (laughs) Like, it won't melt in, like, a normal fire, if you're just kind of building Mm -hmm. a fire. But it will bend. Like, you bite gold and it bends. Yeah. So
1: some of this gold is coating acacia wood. Right. And I think that's the things which need actual structural integrity. Right. But the utensils, like, you can just make it out of gold, probably.
0: I guess so. They're just not very... Good, you know, like, no, and also I'm just picturing this lampstand that's made all out of gold, and then you bump into it, and it bends and spills fireplaces. Jazz,
1: yeah, how bendy do you think gold is? I... <laughs> no, this is a very big lampstand.
0: <laughs> well, I guess so. I'm just saying there's also lots of people, they're traveling in the desert, it'll get bumped and bruised around.
1: Oh, yeah, fair. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta, like, put it on a cart or something yeah. to make sure it doesn't fall over. Yeah. The thing is, like, if you personally bump into the lampstand, you're the one who falls over.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is a pointed comment at the fact that I'm tiny. Like <laughs> Oh no!
1: No, I would never. <laughs> anyway. Short King writes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Beautiful. So- anyway, so continue.
1: Yeah, where was I going?
0: So they made a lot of things out of gold and spent a lot of money.
1: No, they don't have money, is the thing. This is a barter system.
0: They weighed 29 talents and 730 shekels.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Okay. It's a lot.
0: It's a lot. It's
1: literal tons of coinage metals. Yeah. And also they had blue, purple, and crimson yarns, which we don't get an amount for. And it talks about how they made the Afod, like they were supposed to. And they made the rosette of pure gold with that inscription, Holy to the Eternal, and fastened it on. That is way too much detail. Basically, they just do all the vestments the way they're supposed to.
0: So I was trying to look into some interpretations. Did you (laughs) have a meaning that you got from why we got this accounting, basically, of all of the things that they Hmm. did? Why they accounted for it after having made it, after having told us how to make it anyway?
1: So for the accounting of quantity, I think that might be to lend credence to just how many Israelites there are supposed to be. Ooh. Like, you know, we only got a half shekel from all of these Israelites, but uh, look at how many of us there are.
0: Lovely. Okay.
1: In general, why they say it was done as it's supposed to be done. It seems like part of the holy writing is to not only say that you're going to do things, but that you actually do things. Mm. Much like if you are an inexperienced game master and you're playing D&D, heaven forfend, <laughs> you're like... Okay, your characters will do something, something, something. And then you just wait for the players to be like, yeah, we do something, something, something. Mm. It's not really necessary, but it's probably easier to remember when you are doing an oral history.
0: Hmm. Is to do it twice.
1: Yeah. Do you have perspective on this?
0: So I looked it up because I was like, there's got to be some amount of reasoning. And there is a, <laughs> a thing in Midrash Tan that they say, Moshe declared, I am aware that Israel is contentious. Therefore, I shall give them an accounting of the construction of the Mishkan. He began to make an accounting with them. These are the accounts of the Mishkan. He accounted for everything, the gold, the silver, and the brass. And then they do another quote. While he was doing the accounting and going over everything that had been inside for the sanctuary, he forgot, because they were not visible, the 1,775 shekels with which he had fashioned the hooks for the columns. He became distressed and said to himself, now the Israelites will grasp the opportunity to say that I have taken them. He began to review every aspect of the work. The Holy One, blessed be God, thereupon opened his eyes and caused him to lift them upwards, and he saw the hooks of the columns. He told them loudly that the one thousand seven hundred and seventy-five shekels of gold had been used for the hooks of the columns. Then the Israelites were satisfied.
1: Jazz, I might actually cry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I love that. What was the source for that? <laughs> it is called Midrash Tanhuma, mm-hmm. a link okay. I found it on Safaria, thank you Safaria, (laughs) and I was just like why do we get these specific numbers and it was because Moshe was like nobody can say that I have stolen the money, I have used it, here's everything I have used it for, I believe in transparency, I know that the people are going to fight me so I'm going to be very meticulous and also I have quite literally taken their money and melted it down for hooks Uh, so I gotta tell them what I used it for. Good. And also he just literally couldn't remember. And then God like lifted his eyes and he was like, aha, (laughs) I used them for the hooks. I did use them. See, they're right there. (laughs) It's a
1: very good Midrash.
0: It's so good.
1: So yeah, to be clear, 40, 16, Musha did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. And as he was recently told, in the first month of the second year, I'm not sure when they're counting that second year from, my guess is just like, They started receiving instructions and stuff after the first Rosh Hashanah, and then it comes around to the second one, and it's like, okay, now we put it into practice.
0: This is a really good question, because I don't know if it's supposed to be the second year, as in the second year of our calendar of, like, 5780, or just, like, the second year since they escaped from Egypt.
1: Well... I'm almost certain it's not supposed to be of the Hebrew calendar.
0: I think it's supposed to be since they escaped from Egypt. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Especially since I'm pretty sure the Hebrew calendar was made after the canonization of the Torah.
0: Yeah, and I think it's supposed to account from things since the beginning of the Torah, not just since the beginning of Egypt. Mm -hmm. Anyway, continue.
1: So he puts the Ark together outside. Like, they construct the tent for the Mishkan... And then he puts the Ark together, and then he takes it inside the Mishkan, and then sets up the Altar of Burnt Offering and the basin and stuff. So I'm going to turn the questions back on you. What does the fact that the Holy of Holies is assembled in broad daylight tell you about where God is?
0: Oh, I love that. I wasn't expecting to get any questions, though, so I'm a little <laughs> unprepared.
1: Yeah, because it's your job and not mine. I'm overstepping my bow. <laughs>
0: overturning established social norms and orders. Congratulations. Anyway, (laughs) That's a much better way to phrase it. Thanks. Um, (laughs) I like it. I think that, like, if we read the specific accounting of, like, this many talents and this many shekels to be about Moshe feeling like he has to engage in radical transparency with the people, then the (laughs) building it outside in plain daylight where everybody can watch is also, uh, like, we are building it in full view of the community and Anybody can see that that's what we're doing with the resources we took from you is like a nice way, considering that he is kind of the government, you know, insofar <laughs> as there is one, to be like, hey, the government is accountable to the people.
1: Jazz, how do you pull these out so well? <laughs> that's a really good divar on that. <laughs> Thank you.
0: So I like that. Also, I like that it's in broad daylight because. I don't know. God is of the people. God is among the people. You're making this dwelling place specifically for God to live among the people. And it moves yeah. it from being just a thing that Moshe does up alone on the mountain to know it happens among all of the people and they all have kind of joint ownership of it. And
1: Yeah. Yeah. Also, I want to point out that what this means to me is God isn't the Ark of the Covenant. This thing that could be an idol is not the body of God. It is a point of contact that gets put behind curtains, not because it is God, but because the Kool-Aid man is both the juice and the glass. (laughs)
0: Lovely.
1: where I'm going with that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I really like the interpretation of it's not God. It's a place to be in touch. Yeah. Your friend is not the phone. Boomers, like I, I am just using the phone to be in touch with my friend. Whoa. <laughs> anyway, continue.
1: The phone is the Ark of the Covenant.
0: Whatever. Uh, so, yeah, after all of this is
1: set up, the Mishkan is done exactly according to plan with radical transparency throughout a cloud settles down upon the Mishkan. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the Mishkan, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey, but if it just sat there, then they didn't set out until it left. Mm-hmm. And fire was in the cloud by night. Yeah. Before the eyes of all the House of Israel at each stage of their journey. That's why I said in the summary that the Messenger cloud settles in because I think this is what we were promised in a previous Parsha that I am forgetting.
0: Mm-hmm. There is a thing in my Torah commentary mm-hmm. that I don't know if you have two because yours is a Christian one that says chazak chazak venit chazek and is that in yours? It's at the end of the Parsha.
1: What line
0: would that be? It's not a line. I think it's an indication that the that the book is over.
1: Okay. <laughs> no, I definitely don't have that though. Let's see here. Oh, okay. So the footnote here for 40, 34 to 38 mm-hmm. is titled The Climax of the Book. And it describes some things that are going and relates them to earlier and later citations. But interestingly, the last line is just, God is on the march.
0: Fascinating.
1: Which is like a level of citationless commentary that is unusual.
0: Yeah, so I just checked, and chazak, chazak, venit chazak is at the end of Breshit as well. So I think it's just marking oh, the end of the book. And I don't remember the exact translation that's sort of typically given, but it's like strength, strength, and may you be strengthened. Something like mm-hmm. that. I don't remember why it's traditional to put at the end of the book. But I like it.
1: Yeah. It seems like, and they lived happily ever after, or the Spanish, y colorín, colorado, esta cuente se ha acabado.
0: I don't know what that means.
1: It's like, the, the story continues, but it's also at its end for
0: now. Oh, lovely. Okay, yeah, I think that that's right. Do you have any last thoughts about the cloud hovering and having fire in it, and they're not moving until it, like, lifts up?
1: I have no idea what that's supposed to look like.
0: I bet it looks cool.
1: Oh, for sure. (laughs) Now all of China knows you're here.
0: Mm. Okay. Okay. Um, Welcome to Rating God's Writing, the segment where we pick two scales to rate the Parsha on and do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love how every time we make an ad hoc description of this segment, it's so much better than picking a script and staying with that.
0: <laughs> we have scripts for everything else. It's fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, Jazz. Yes. Out of two artisans who are in love, how many artisans would you rate this Parsha?
0: I would rate this Parsha five uncredited women artists
1: okay who are
0: also in love
1: okay
0: <laughs> out of the 25-ish women artisans who are also there and not credited because we don't get a specific number for how many of them there are okay because I I'm not super into this partial like I think there is valuable stuff here but I don't know that there's, like, enough valuable stuff to justify the length of it.
1: Are you similarly glad that we're taking these two pashat, At a one episode run. I
0: sure am. Yeah. (laughs) I just kind of feel like there is valuable stuff in here. Yeah. But we got a lot of that valuable stuff in the other Parshot. Yeah. Listen, I still love the holy crafting aspect of it. I really, really do. But there's not (laughs) like a lot of new holy crafting in it for me. Right. Like there's making the same thing. It's not even like they're making a new thing to be excited about. So that's my one thought about it. Lots of the details are good, but you do kind of have to go into the details. Yeah. Yeah. Out of (laughs) 1,775 shekels, what would you rate this Parsha? Shekels of what? Silver.
1: (laughs) Okay. I would rate this Parsha 200 shekels, but I forgot that 1,575 shekels have been cast into hooks. (laughs) Because... There are, like, three, maybe four new details across these two parshot, which they are genuinely interesting details. I love accounting. So, yeah, 200 shekels of silver, visible. Because there are some interesting things, but I just don't care about a lot of it. (laughs) It's information that we've already received, and it is not phrased in a particularly novel way.
0: yeah. Okay, let's move into continuity corner. So we got a piece of listener mail about Mishpatim. So our listener said that Z had taken an entire course about various type of Jewish literature and spent some time on the question of the thief in the night, which we were talking about.
1: With Cassidy, right?
0: yeah listeners in case you like missed that one one go back and listen it was fun but two there is this question just to catch you up of like if a burglar is breaking in and is struck and killed by the person living in the house it's not considered an act of murder but if the sun has risen when that's happening or if it's in daylight then it is still considered an act of murder yeah. So our listener and here Het Rusa had been discussing it, and it was clear that you may not chase after the burglar and hurt them, and also it is only when the thing happens at night. So the commentary here is, my rabbi's thoughts on this passage were that this is where the permissibility of killing and self-defense from is derived in the written Torah, Personally, I feel troubled by this idea, given how stand-your-ground laws are interpreted in the U.S. court system. I do, however, appreciate that, as I see it, after someone is no longer in your personal domain, that killing a thief is murder. I think it's important that Halakha forbids this sort of revenge explicitly. Mm, yeah.
1: Like you can't hunt down a
0: thief. Yeah. I've also read from Tosfo specifically, that Ziknim suggests that had this thief gone in the front door instead of, like, tunneling in, It is expected that he would flee out the same entrance, and for that reason, it would be considered murder. I don't agree with this line of reasoning, but it's really interesting (laughs) to look at the commentary and response around it. A lot of them make assumptions about what the thief's plans and contingencies are. Mm -hmm. A very common assumption by many of the sages and rabbis was that the thief who goes in the night is prepared to kill, whereas one who goes in the daylight is not. Rabbeinu Hananel, an 11th century Tunisian rabbi, says, according to translation... Mm -hmm fact that the thief operated at night is prima facie evidence that he posed a death threat to his potential victim and this other person the de chachamim from the 17th and 18th century says killing is only permitted at a certain time while the breaking in is happening not while the thief is found yeah okay so that's a lot of different things but they all seem to illuminate a sort of We don't agree with it still, but at least the rabbis did have this concept of like, really, it has to be very genuinely about saving your life.
1: Yeah, it's not stand your ground. It's like, you don't get in trouble if you saved your life.
0: Yeah, I think that is the more generous reading. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for writing in. Jazz, can you take us to the class? Thank you for listening to Kosher Queers. If you like what you've heard... You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com kosherqueers, which will give you bonus content and help us keep making this for you. You can also follow us on Twitter at kosherqueers, or like us on Facebook at kosherqueers, or email us your questions, comments, concerns, and assorted thoughts on our parsha at kosherqueers at gmail.com. And please do spread the word about our podcast. Our artwork is by the talented Lior Gross. Our music is courtesy of the fabulous band Brivola, whose work you can find on Bandcamp. Go buy their album. They're great. Our sound production this week is done by our excellent audio editor, Ezra Faust.
1: Our full transcripts, as with every episode, are done by Deco and Jazz, and definitely accessible through the Buzzsprout website.
0: I'm Jazz Twersky, and you can find me at WordNerdKnitter on Twitter. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Lenape people.
1: I'm Lula Varno, and you can find me at Space Truck 6 on Twitter, or yell at me at Palm Liker. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Wapekute and Anishinabek.
0: Have a lovely, queer Jewish day. <laughs> This week's gender is nibbling.
1: This week's pronouns are co and cos.